This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Zach, that's Winkler, that's Caleb. Guys, we got a lot of ground to cover. Like I mentioned last week, you know, we kind of took Matthew 17 a little bit short because there's so, so very much in Matthew 18, so we're not going to waste any time with the funnies from the beginning. We're just going to dig right in. So, Zach... If you will hit this first section, uh, and I'm going to change it just a little bit from, from my original plan. Just read one through four to start. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, <clears throat> who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I don't know how to take the question initially. So, I, I want to know how y'all think about this because how I initially took the question was they're like, hey, who's going to be best up in heaven? Kind of like whenever they were like, hey, who's, can we be the inner circle, Jesus? So, yeah. it kind of feels like that, but also it could be taken another way to where it's just like extreme curiosity. So, in the kingdom of heaven, like, Jesus, who, who's the greatest? Like, who's going to be the Michael Jordan of heaven, right? So, like, how did y'all take that? Because my, my commentaries didn't really clear that up for me. Yeah, I, I mean, human nature, I immediately went to, all right, so you're going to be at the right hand of the Father. Who's going to be at the right hand of the right hand right. of the Father? Right. I mean, I immediately am going, like, who's going to have the most stroke up in heaven? Like, um, you know, and it's got to be one of us. I mean, we're, like, you picked us. Right. So, when we get to heaven... Who's going to be right next to you? And then who will be right next to them? It's like, can you rank us? Um, you know, it's like uh, they're playing March Madness. It's March Madness for the disciples right now. I mean, they're just trying to, f- who's going to be the winner? That's the way I took it. Right. That's how I took it too. What about you guys? I mean, that's, <clears throat> I feel like Zach's got something cooking, so I'll go first and no. then let you. No. He's always got that look in his eyes. See, you're starting yeah. to see it. Yeah. You're starting to see it. <laughs> He's going to tell me I'm wrong right after this. Uh, so. I mean, I don't know why, but originally when I first read it, I thought of um, the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And, you know, even talking about God the Father and, you know, maybe the disciples as well. Maybe it was just more of an honest question of who's the greatest, like including all, you know, all those people as well, all the prophets. You know, maybe not just as self-centered as maybe we would expect, you know, lately from the disciples. Right. So, I mean, I didn't read it necessarily in a way that they're asking, like, they all lined up and they said, okay, of us, who's the best? Rank order. <laughs> who's your favorite? All right, Bartholomew, that guy yeah. sucks. He has no stories in the Bible. Like, no one's talking about that guy. Number we, 11. Right. I think we know who number 12 is. <laughs> right. Right. Zach, what do you think? I think option A. I mean, that's just off the cuff. I, I think that it's, it's a human nature kind of a thing, and they're trying to figure out what their position is going to be in this great new kingdom. Right. And I think I love the way Jesus responds when he's talking about them becoming like children. And what he means by that is what, what are children? They're simple. They're helpless. Uh, they're trusting. They're super dependent. And so once we become adults with, you know, fancy jobs or fancy businesses or, or, you know, fancy houses or fancy, what we think we know stuff. Like I, I remember uh, recently Elon Musk came on, I think it was on Halloween. He went on the Joe Rogan experience <laughs> And 
at the end, they were talking about how he was supposed to fight Mike Mark Zuckerberg and how they were trying to work it out. And they were going to like fight in the Coliseum, like the you know the city of Rome gave them permission to like fight in the Coliseum, and then apparently Mark Zuckerberg didn't want to do it or something. Whatever, who who cares? But Elon Musk started describing certain positions in fighting, and Joe Rogan is a black belt in jujitsu. Uh, he has his black belts from two different highly respected uh, professors. Um, he's been common commentating on fights for a couple of decades. He knows everything there is to know. And then Elon Musk starts talking about these positions. And I'm just like, that's no, that's I'm a purple belt. And it's like, that's not how you do that. And Joe's kind of being nice and asking him about this and about like, and you can tell that Elon, it, it's like, he's fallen for the trap that because I'm smart and good, at one oh, yeah. thing that I'm smart and good at everything. Yep. It's kind of yep. like when people take their political opinions from celebrities, it's like, just because the person did great in the movie heat, that doesn't yeah. mean you should vote based on their preferences or to follow their things. So that I kind of feel like in here, it's the same thing. Like, look, we are, we need to act like children where we yeah. need to be humble and we need to, we need to act as if we couldn't provide for ourselves if we wanted to. Well, and he just got through explaining that he was going to have to be crucified, killed and resurrected. And now they come at him with, well, yeah, but what's our place going to be? Children, <laughs> cool. sit down I get it. and let I get me it. explain to you. Yeah. 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 I think the other thing that kind of the important, other important distinction when you start talking about children is they've kind of accomplished nothing. I mean, they haven't done anything with their life yet. They're kids. Uh, <laughs> and I think as an adult, we measure our worth by accomplishments. I mean, it's, it's, again, and if you do that with kids, like they're literally the most worthless things yeah, on the planet. I'm like, so, I mean, you Car- are just Caroline and Emily, I debit. love you dearly. Uh, but the, uh, but no, they, I mean, they haven't accomplished anything. Uh, and, and generally when we measure our accomplishments, especially as a, you know, when we're adults, we measure our accomplishments. And the other thing is we always look at the ones where we're like, Oh, well, look how sacrificial I have. You know, I worked so hard at this. I sacrificed so much to accomplish this goal. And we wave our flag and look how amazing we are. And I think what Jesus is showing us with the child, uh, that a transformed life is not done by personal efforts, but by humbling, allowing God to bring spiritual renewal. That's it. Um, I think that, you know, I still think that the whole idea of if I accomplish certain things or if I do certain things, number one, you probably didn't do it. You actually, not probably, you definitely didn't do that on your own, but it's not in the way of, oh, well, you know, you didn't just bootstrap your way through this. God was there. God was helping. God was making a way for you. Or God was saying, this is not the path to go down and putting those road signs up. So. Absolutely. Zach, hit uh, verses five and six, because it goes along with all this, but I did want to take a little detour. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Literally one of the most gangster things Mm -hmm. that Jesus said in a book full of gangster quotes and things like that. Now, what you will find when you read this text in context is there are a lot of people culturally, specifically on the conservative side of the aisle, that will use this. So, like, there are different municipalities that are calling their legislation the Millstone Act, and it has to do with children and transgenderism and those Mm -hmm. types of things. And they will quote this like, hey, the Bible says it's, you know, better to have a millstone tied around your neck and you'd be thrown in the sea than to, you know, do something to one of the kids. 
they're not talking, you know, about like kids in the sense of how a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, they're talking about this in terms of the sense of kids, like kids of faith, which there could be 85 year olds that are, that are kids in terms of the context. So that's very, very important. But so it's, it's good not to miss that. There's another thing that's good not to miss here that I did not know until I was doing my research. Gentiles during this time period use this as an actual form of execution. They would literally tie millstones to people's necks and throw them into the sea as a form of punishment. Mm. And so this would have been, this wouldn't have been extreme, just extreme for Jesus's audience to hear. It would have been repulsive. Mm-hmm. Like when we hear about like honor killings over in the Middle yeah, East, yeah. here in the U.S., that's not just shocking to us. It's completely repulsive. When we hear about, I think it was like different Indian cultures, or I, I can't remember the exact context, but it's like when the husband died, they would put the wife on the husband's funeral pyre and mm-hmm as they would light him up into ashes, she would be killed as well. That's not just shocking, it's repulsive. And so we have to remember, how did the audience that heard this receive it? And they would have received it as just this extreme example of what Jesus was talking about. There would have been no way to to not take him seriously mm. when he was talking about this. Did you guys uh, learn anything else about that little section? I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it was really good. Not like that. Strike one, strike two. Good. Strike three. God, I got you guys so good. Sandy Koufax over here. All right. So Winkler, read verses seven through nine, please. Okay. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So verse seven, for it is necessary that temptation comes. We can't escape it. So for anyone that's like, oh, I'm being so tempted. What's wrong? Nothing. It's just, it's just life. This is just kind of what happens. But the big thing that I want to focus on with this section, at least to begin with, for the biblical literists, like literalists out there, how do you read this particular scripture for the people that get on to old earth people? So the young earth people, people that are like, Hey, the Bible says seven days. That means seven 24 hour days. It's not longer than that. You know, the dinosaur bones were put in the soil to test our faith. Stop running people the opposite direction. I would like them to read this section and tell me, how is it that you still have both of your eyes? How is that possible? Mm-hmm. Are you better than everybody else? Is Jesus actually a vine? As according to John 15, is he actually a door? Do we need to knock on Jesus or is he a dude? Like, you know, help me understand that. So again, I, I think it's a problem and this is a hermeneutics approach as well. And, you know, Douglas O'Donnell talks about in his book there uh, from Crossway about the different genres, but I find it increasingly frustrating when Christians get onto other Christians for not reading the Bible literally enough when there are clearly sections, even in the gospels where it's like, Jesus didn't mean this literally. He meant it in a in an ethereal way that you know relates to your next body in the next life. So it's it's not just like this right now. We don't see Christians walking around with one eye for a reason. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. Do y'all see that? Have y'all seen the same thing? Because again, I feel like it's just been ratcheting up here recently. I mean, you're you're talking to somebody who's more of a young Earth guy. I mean, to be perfectly blunt with you, right. but I mean, it's it's more just. Uh, 
looking at some of the timelines and everything now, I mean, I did remember somebody, um, I heard this the other day and I actually was like, Oh, that makes sense. Um, God could have created the whole earth in seven days. It could be as old as we, you know, are, as we put the timelines and the ages to the people who are in the Bible, it could literally be that old, but God created Adam. He did not create infant newborn baby Adam. So the idea that God could not, he created a man who had essentially ingrown age could do the same thing with the earth where it's like, okay, it may be quote unquote, look like have it's billions of years old, but at the same time, it could have been created with billions of years of age. Have you heard him use the same example for the wine? When Jesus turned water into wine? I have not, but that's another one. Yeah. Wine typically would have to be fermented and processed and all that stuff. And it was instantaneous. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I have not thought about the wine, but you are a hundred percent correct. Have you the best best wines, old wine. Yeah. Should be. That's a difficult. Well, Let's hold off. That's a deep hole. It man. seems like it is. So do you realize why I talk about why I won't go down this path with people? Because it's impossible to get out quickly. Because here's the thing about this debate is no one can know for sure. That's correct. And so if you spend the majority of your free time going down either rabbit hole, yeah. trying to disprove the other, my God, let me suggest you get a hobby or a dog. Like yeah. there's something that you could be doing better with your time. I think even to this, to this passage that you're talking about here, going back to this, I mean, to the point of reading it literally, or is it metaphorical or, mm-hmm. or what are we talking about here? You know, I, sometimes I wonder like when, when there's something like this, God is basically, I mean, some, a lot of the Bible is almost written like in riddles. Like you're just trying to discern, like, what is he talking about? It's almost like God made this really challenging. So we will spend more time in it. Right. (laughs) So it's not as easily accessible. It just says this. Okay, well, I'll go do that then. No, it's going to be a little more complex than that. And you're going to have to come back to this over and over again, because you're going to have to figure out what this means. Right. What did did our pastor say this morning? He said, it's, it's deep enough for a baby not to drown, but uh, also deep enough for an elephant to swim. Y'all remember him saying that this morning? Is that the only one paying attention at church? But it was basically like, you know, a baby won't drown in the waters of the Bible, but also an elephant, it's deep enough for him to, maybe that, maybe that was Matt Chandler. Maybe that was not our church, but I think it was that, that same thing. But it's like, so if you are a high minded, older individual with all your mental (coughs) faculties and a brain that's fully functioning and grown, then there's enough water to swim in for you. But also if you're, if you're a child, you can have childlike faith and it's almost in a way easier. I really like that. It's a good saying. I I think, go ahead. No, please. You're good. Caleb, Caleb, you go. go. Wait, arm wrestle, arm wrestle for the right to speak next. Okay. Rochambeau one, one for one. So it's one, two, three, shoot. Okay. For the next one who goes, do it. Let's go. Pay rock scissors. One, two, three, shoot. Dang it. Go one, two, three, shoot guys. Bam, bam, Caleb. See, what I said. ball don't lie. Let's go. Um, I mean, I I probably was going to change it a little bit. I don't know what you were going to say, but the I mean, I kind of read this too, just from a parenting perspective, and it's very convicting. You know, when you think about um, being a stumbling block for your kids, and you know, I yeah. mean, I just feel like because we're already we're talking about children, right? I mean, I think one of the things I was going to say from that previous section was just have has there ever been a time in history where children are valued less than right now? I don't think so. I could be wrong. But um, at 7 to 11, I mean, that's really where my head went was, 
how can I make sure that I'm not a stumbling block to my own kids? Are you talking about now, like 2023 or at the time of scripture? Like right now, 2023. I mean, I would argue that at that time, they were certainly worth less at the time that this was written because let's just look at it in a Roman context. So in the first century Roman context, the head of the household had the power of life and death over his entire household. Mm -hmm. So if his wife did something that he found to be egregious and like mortal as a sin to him, that he wouldn't have said sin, then he could have killed her and had no punishment whatsoever for it. Children that had any types of deformities could be left out for exposure and there would be no issue with that. That's part of the reason why the church grew in a Roman context was because these babies that would be left out to die would be gathered up by the Christians and be raised by those Christians, Christian families because Roman fathers would just cast the babies out if they weren't perfect or if it, they were the wrong gender or something like that. So there is, I mean, in a country where we kill 850,000 babies a year via abortion, uh, it's certainly different. But in the context there, like the, the value of human life outside the womb was astonishingly low compared to today. Because if someone were to put their three-month-old outside in the woods, right. like oh, yeah. it would be shock of all shocks. Like they would stop the presses around the entire world. Mm-hmm. But back in that day, that was just another day. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know if you're thinking about abortion. Otherwise, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, it's I mean, a lot we kill of like with sixty or seventy sure, so. million babies right, worldwide yeah. with abortion every year. Right. I, I kind of went down the same path, just taking this, you know, different direction would be with marriage. Um, you know, one of the things that said here is, the truly humble person helps to build up others and not tear them down. This person is a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Thus, we must remove from our lives anything that makes us stumble. If we don't, we will cause others to stumble. So, if I think about circumstances where I'm the most prone to just act out. It could certainly be inside those really um, deep personal relationships, you know, where you can really cause somebody else to sin. And so that's been something that, you know, I've tried to think more about is in order for my marriage to, to be better, I have to make sure that I'm not a stumbling block to my spouse. Even with kids, it can happen. But I'd argue with a marriage, it's almost more difficult. It's much more difficult for me in that scenario than it is with external people that I can generally, you know, stay calm and collected with. I think the other, I mean, one other example I would actually give here would, you know, you have kids, you have your spouse. I think the other thing is just people who have just begun this walk in their faith. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're incredibly privileged. You know, many of us were probably raised in a home by Christian parents. And we've had the privilege of knowing what a life looks like living Un, like living uh, with and seeing as an example people who are trying to live a godly life. We have that privilege, and a lot of people have not had that privilege. It's probably more true. I mean, you think of the next generation that are to come through, it's going to be, I mean, so many of them have no idea what this life is like. They don't know what it looks like. We have to be real careful as Christians, like, you know, who, who have been making this walk for a while. For those new Christians, we don't want to be that stumbling block. We don't want to act like, you know, don't behave like you hit a triple when you were born on third base, you know, be humble in what you like. know that you started at a certain point, but you probably started at a point that was much further down the line than the person, the person who just started this walk, especially if they haven't had that good influence in their life. Well, I think another thing going back to the first section, talking about the children and the millstone, this is where I think it's a good reminder for us to call out false sheep or sorry, uh, 
what am I trying to say? False prophets, yes. false prophets, wolves, um, who are preying on the sheep. There you go. Made it, <laughs> made it there. I got there eventually. But mm-hmm. like, that's why I think when, when people, uh, it something that Ryan Horn, Ryan Horn actually said something smart today in Sunday school. I know, I know. Um, but no, I, I can say that cause he's not here to defend himself, but he was basically, uh, talking about how, um, in any other context, Christians, it's okay for them to kind of call certain things out in other people until it's another church. Right. So if it's a church down the road, let's call it new hope or something like that. Maybe that's down the road from our church where they have like a lady pastor and they say a bunch of kind of weird things from the stage. If we make any commentary about that, Ooh, judgmental. Don't do that. You shouldn't judge. Ooh, nope, no, no, no. That's just the way they like to do things. And you're, you don't know, you don't know better than those people. But I think that this is a good reminder that there are young Christians in every church. Yeah of any size. If you have a 50 person congregation or a 25,000 person congregation, there are young Christians and the lead pastor is, is going to be able to easily mold that clay. That clay is sopping wet so they could very easily mold it. And so that's why I think it's okay. You know, for people like me that are more on the prophet side of the, the prophet and shepherd scale to throw those firebombs, to throw those grenades. Cause it's like, look, this isn't just a preference thing. I'm not, I'm not dying on my sword of, I don't like this version of music over that version of music, right? right? If you, if you like Hillsong music and it's songs that are theologically correct. And I like songs from a, a Christian death core band called impending doom. And that's also <laughs> theologically correct. Neither one of us is right. That's preference. But it's when a pastor is saying something to their flock that could lead them to hell is making them convince, convince that, look, you know, Christ wants your entire life, but you know, he doesn't really care about your sexuality. Mm. You know, he made you that way. So it's okay to act out that way, right? The way Joby describes it, Joby Martin describes it is uh, when he talks about the knights back in the day that knew they were going to be slaying people and they got baptized with both of their hands out of the water because they knew their hands uh, holding their swords were going to do on like really diabolically evil things potentially. And he says in a modern context, people have two hands out of the water. One hand has their wallet and the other hand has their sexuality. Yeah. It's That's super so duper good. good. But how many churches are teaching that? Oh yeah. Joe, Joby's using that as an example to repudiate in a really bad, dark ideology. But a bunch of churches are like, no, they're, they're embracing that. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I know with, with my church, uh, going to Joby's analogy of the, you know, sexuality and the wallet. wallet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, going to the wallet side of things. Okay. We have a lot of people who go to that church who probably are going like, Oh, they shouldn't be doing this and that's sinful and they shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, you know, probably casting some aspersions to people outside of the church or to other churches. And, and, and yet I want to say, uh, are like the number of people who tithe, who attend our church res- regularly is like maybe 25% or Oof. something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a low, low number and you're going every single one of you, every single one of you are benefiting from this church in some way, shape, fashion, or form. And you're giving nothing. And it's, you know, and, and I, Marty's real good about like, you know, Marty Grubbs is the pastor. Marty's real good about it. He's like, look, I'm not saying that you have to give 10%. I'm just saying that you need to give. Give what you can. 
Sometimes that's going to be more than 10%. Right. That's, how, that's how Joby <laughs> describes it as he's like, you know, yes, you're right. The tithe is an old Testament concept. So he's like, so he's like, you can give more now. How yeah. awesome is that? <laughs> like you don't have to stop at 10%. Like that, that's a different way of thinking about it for sure. Uh, we need to keep this train yeah. moving. So we're going to do the parable of the lost sheep. So Winkler, if you can hit verses 10 through 14. Yeah. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So... First time I heard this again, not growing up in church, I was reading, reading along. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, one sheep went away. I'm like, cool, cool. Just stick with the 99. Yeah. Like that one got away. You know, it's all good. That one had it coming. Let's stick with the 99. (laughs) And then I read a couple of verses later. I'm like, all right, cool, cool. Sorry. My bad. Like, okay, you got to go for apparently sheep will stay in one place except for the, the adventurous ones. You got to go get that one. So uh, for anyone that's out there like me, leave a comment and let me know. Um, but it, again, this is just an interesting way for us to think about in that culture. This was a sheep herding culture. Everyone would have understood what he meant and no one would have been dumb like me and thought, oh yeah, to stay with the 99, that one had it coming. They would have like left the 99 to go and get the one. And I think about it in terms of how we share the gospel with certain people. And I will, I will be the first one to admit, feel free to say that you're better than me and hovering above me in this way. But there are people that I, that I thought for a long time, I'm not there now because I've, I've literally hung out with rapists and murderers now. So it's like, I feel like this has been completely ran out of my system where I was like, man, the gospel ain't going to work on that guy. Like, dude, he is ratchet. Like, you know, the gospel's good. It's not that good. And I just remember thinking that for a long time. And now it's like, when you hear about these, these people that have led these crazy lives, and I'll tell you when this first started to shift for me, I've told this story before, but uh, the University of Central Oklahoma, which is where my wife and I met and got scholarships and where we went here uh, in the town that we currently live in, the, while we were there, they started a hockey team. And so this hockey team was going to compete. It's technically club because of title nine and all that BS, but you know, they were going to start a hockey team. And so it was, you know, some guys from Canada and some guys from the Chicago area and Detroit area and all that. And so they're getting the thing going and, and within a few years they won a national title. So shout out to the UCO hockey team. But there was one guy on the team that was brought in to fight. Now you might watch a lot of baseball and think to yourself, well, who's the guy on the San Diego Padres that's just there to fight people? The guy doesn't exist. They don't have that job in major league baseball, but in all levels of hockey, some, some even youth hockey all the way up to the NHL, there are guys whose main job, their, their job title is defenseman, but really they're enforcer and they're, yeah, they're the goon fighting the guy on the other team. Well, the goon on this team is a guy named Kevin Fukala and this guy looked about as crazy as he acted. So he had like <laughs> scars on his face. I think he had two different color eyes. Like, and he got in fights all the time on the ice and off the ice, but every team needed one of those, right? And so he had a well-worn reputation as a guy that, you know, you didn't have to cross him for him to fight you. He would just fight you. And so Kelsey and I had been married like probably six months and we're at Walmart over there on I-35 and Across the produce aisle, I see Kevin Fukala and we lock eyes and he just looks right through my soul and decides to make a beeline right for me. And at the time, 
I don't know anything about fighting. I'm like 22 years old. I had never done jujitsu. I'm like, all right, I don't know if I'm going to whoop them, but it's going to hurt regardless. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, I'm a newly married guy. I don't want to get beat up in front of my wife. So I'm just figuring out what I'm going to do here. How hard can I hit him with a tomato? But he comes up to me <laughs> and he literally, he's intense the whole way. I, I remember this so vividly. He's intense the whole way. And then as, as soon as he gets to me, his countenance softened. His shoulders came down lower. He goes, Kyle, hey, man, it's great to see you. And Kelsey, he knew my wife as well. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's so great to see you guys. Hey, I just accepted Jesus here recently. Can I tell you all about it? Oh, man. And and, and, uh, to go back in time in Chicago, this guy was a street enforcer for street gangs Mm. in Chicago. So he didn't just fight on, on for hockey teams. He was helping run girls and drugs and weapons and fighting in his entire world was violence but the chaplain of the uco hockey team shared jesus with this guy in a in a car just the two of them could have died but he he shared christ with this dude and even a gangbanger right the blood of jesus washed that guy just as clean as it does that four-year-old girl that somehow some way understands that christ died for her right that's that's when it really started to shift for me to being like maybe the gospel is good news for everybody and can be for everybody. I know it took a while to, to tell that story, but I just, I love that story, story because it's just like all of us kind of have a Kevin Fukala in our life that we know. And it's just like, if you're ever wondering if the gospel is not sweet enough or not good enough, bro, you don't need to add anything to it. You just need to preach it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this parable, I mean, it's, it's so wonderful to know that God does not look at anybody as expendable. I mean, every one of us is actually valued by, by him. I mean, much in the same way that, uh, much in the same way, I think that when you look at our, your own children, it's like none of them are going to be expendable. You know, it's like, I, you know, I'm committed to making sure that, you know, I don't care how far away you go. I'm going to be there to help you get back. Um, now one thing I will say about this and also the prodigal son, I think, you know, they're wonderful parables. Um, I think a lot of times people will use those and then it's some sort of, I don't know, I call it, it seems like it's an odd, like odd justification for like, well, I'm not in a good spot right now, but you know, the Lord will come and get me. He'll leave to get the one from the 99 and kind of just ignoring the process of sanctification and and what that takes. Um, I think the important lesson here is both on the prodigal son and on the the sheep the one that gets the the one the parable of the lost sheep I think in both of those situations God may be going to seek you out and find you or God may be going to find this one lost lamb right but ultimately the lamb has to come back the prodigal son may have wandered far away but he had to come back okay God is like God will be there waiting for you to come back but you have to make the effort to do so. Okay, pause real quick. So this is one of those moments where, all kidding aside, I wish Matt or Ryan were here because they're they're way more into the whole Calvinist theology thing. Yeah. So I've never really thought about the 99. Did the shepherd go and get the sheep and convince him to come back? And the sheep <laughs> turned around and came back? Or did the shepherd go and snatch the up. sheep, gave him no choice, threw him over his shoulder, and yeah. brought him back? See, and I just don't think that God is grabbing people by, his, by their ear and saying, you are coming with me. 
And you see a cage stager would be all over that and I say, know. that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> you're dead. You can't reach out your hand while you're drowning. You're just dead. You're dead and drowning somehow. What'd you call it? A cage what? Cage stager. So cage stage Calvinism. That's like Nicolas Cage where he's like in his most crazy, crazy eye situation. Like that's how people get about Calvinism to where it's like that is literally the only way. And to his own, own admission, the horn, since I've talked bad about him while he's not here, he said he has softened from his cage stage. So he ramped up to cage stage and now he's kind of settled into somewhere else on yeah. the spectrum, which I don't know exactly where he's settled into. But, but you see, yeah. the I mean, even just asking you guys that question gave me consternation. I'm like, what? how did the sheep come back? We know yeah. that the sheep came back, but did it choose to? And that's where, he, is it sovereign or is it free will? Zach, what do you think? Because again, I, we're, we're always ending up here. It's the I, same answer. Yeah. They're, they're both true at the same time and you'll figure it out on the other side. On this deal, I, remember, I heard Joby talk about his dad and he prayed for him for years. Yep, 30 right? some years, I think. Yeah. And like with your story, I've, I've got a small list of people that I pray for every day to come to Christ. And it kind of has the spectrum. It's the crazy people that are going through tremendously difficult circumstances right now in their life, all the way up to some people that are very close to me that are very successful, so successful that they don't need Christ effectively. Whether they would say that or not, that's the way that they you know, sort of live. And probably those are the ones that I'm, I prayed the most for with the most skepticism that it's actually going to occur at some point. You know, I, I know deathbed conversions are common when you have to confront all that, but um, I, I definitely have to hold out that anybody, anybody can be, can be saved, right? Including the thief on the cross. But I'd say for those that, um, you know, have everything going for them, especially in conditions we live in and, you know, where we're at, that's, that's the one that concerns me the most. Mm -hmm. If I can add to that a little bit, and this is still within the scope of scripture because this came up and well, apparently a bunch of great stuff came up in Sunday school today, but this was not Ryan Horn's doing. This was actually his wife's doing. <laughs> so we're describing certain people and Ryan's wife, lovely wife, has a friend who lives in the same neighborhood who lives in a successful family. They have healthy, they're healthy, they have healthy children, they're doing the type of education they want to have for their children. They're, you know, they have two cars, both of them work, the house is fancy, like all the boxes are being checked. And so this woman doesn't feel her depravity in any way because she's lovely. I'm not Ryan Horn's wife, Ryan Horn's wife's friend. She's a lovely woman who, who runs a, a lovely household of a bunch of rule following, you know, check boxers or box checkers, I guess. Like, and so I think about, you know, your super well off buddy that can literally insulate themselves from the world and they can go full prepper or they can go full open handed, you know, generosity and do all that without any connection to Christ whatsoever. Yeah. Or the stay at home mom that has always been nice, sat in the front of the class, got good grades, was well-liked, well-respected by her peers, was doted on by adults. And it's harder for them to see their depravity, whereas the gang-banging, you know, dope-dealing, murdering, whoever, that type of person, when they hear the gospel, they're like, oh, shoot, I super need me some of that. Whereas, you know, the suburban housewife without any type of Judeo-Christian ethic running through her bloodstream might be like, Meh, do I really need that? Seems seems like it's going to be right. complicated. There's, I mean, there's a lot of people like that too that are miserable and that would admit that they're miserable. But there's, I feel like the the ones you're talking about are the ones that are like, no, everything's good. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, and that's, those are, that's tough for sure. It gets complicated too. Like one individual I can think of, um, they work with some, some investors out of New York who are all Jewish. And so one of the things that this person will say is, well, you know, these are all great people doing great things and they don't believe that necessarily Christ is the only way. And this person grew up in the church in a sense, right? So, um, it's just really difficult. You know, I think that's what it gets back to. This whole conversation comes back to how do you know if your pastor is telling you what's right? How do you know what truth is? You've actually got to be reading it word for word like we are. Well, and, and you could be you say Jesus is, right. you know, like we just like we read a couple chapters ago. When you, you could say I am. Right. And you can and Caleb, you can be very easily swayed. Just today I was listening to Dennis Prager. He has a great 30-minute podcast every week called um, uh, Fireside Chat. And he was asked a question about Judaism and Christianity. And again, he is a He's a Jew, um, and he's not Orthodox, but he's like he's like a serious Jew. He's not just a cultural Jew, yeah. um, and he's written commentaries on you know four out of the five books of the Pentateuch, and you know uh, you know he's he's full on Jew, right? Um, and the, is that a category of Jew? Yeah. Um, there's yeah, we know anyways, on the census. Yeah, full on Jews. Um, <laughs> there's Orthodox, full ons, um, and so in this particular context, he basically was asked like, "Hey, Jews tend to believe that." you know, you, you just have to live a good enough life to make it to heaven. Mm-hmm. Whereas Christians believe that you can't live a good enough life, but you have to have the sacrifice of Christ for that. And so again, a guy that has almost no context for the new Testament, but a deep respect for Christians and what their impact that they've had on culture. He basically said after he, you know, kind of weaved in and out of his explanation that, yeah, I mean, you know, there are Jews that will keep kosher and that will, you know, do the Jewish Shabbats and they'll do the Sabbaths and all that, that won't go to heaven because they're not good people. And the way he looked at it from a pragmatic side was would, if you had a business partner and you had two options, one was a pagan that was honest. And the other one was a Christian that was really dishonest. Who would you want to be your business partner? People are like, well, obviously I would want, well, he didn't say pagan. He said Wiccan. He's like, I would take the Wiccan. But the problem with where he stopped his answer is, is what do you mean by good? Mm-hmm. That's right. it. Like, like, so if I were sitting there with them, it's just like, okay, so good people go to heaven, right, Dennis? Yes, they do. How good? What is good? What we're, we're appealing to a, and he uses the Ten Commandments all the time. He said, if society abided by the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need police, we wouldn't need lawyers, we wouldn't need any of that. And he's probably right. But it's like, okay, so let's say someone nails the Ten Commandments, but they, they break a bunch of other, like, laws, like, how many laws can you break and still be good? How many commandments can you break and still be good? Mm-hmm. How many times can you break a commandment and still be good? Where is the line? And that's when you start getting into, you know, your worldview has to answer four questions, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Ravi Zacharias taught me this. So origin, where do we come from? Meaning, why are we all here? Morality, what's the difference between good and evil? How can we tell the difference, right? Destiny, where do you go when you die? Judaism does not answer those four questions in right. a cogent manner. Also, Islam is essentially the same thing in a sense. Right. How, exact same. How many good things have I done? Yeah. Yeah. You just have a different well, definition. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like and, and frankly, I mean, Catholicism isn't too far off of that either. I mean, yeah. it's a very works-based religion and, um, you know, they just incorporate the sacrifice of Christ into that as well. So it's like, well, he did this. So you need to go and do the following things. I always struggle with the whole idea of like, well, I'm a good person. And it's like, okay, well, fundamentally, no one's a good person. We all, I mean, um, I don't remember. I don't know the guy that he's got a big old thick Australian accent. Ray Comfort. Thank you. Ray Comfort. Thank you. It's New Zealand. And I love that. 
Kiwi. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're then. stupid in multiple ways, Jake. Keep going. So, but I, I love his little thing where he's going, okay, like, have you ever lied before? Well, yeah. So you're a liar. Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours before? Yeah. So you're a lying thief. And it's like, look, no one, no one on this planet should be classified as a quote unquote good person if you are going off of scripture. We are not good people. All of us are flawed. We may be good by societal standards, but even then, if you think about what has been defined as good over time by society, like think about what's defined as good right now, societal. Oh boy. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's a mess, but then you go back and like, okay, what was defined as good in Spartan society? Mm -hmm. Like what was okay for them? Mm -hmm. What was good and moral by the societal standards of that time that we would find to be an abomination? It's a problem. And you can't, that's why the, that's why the Prager's idea doesn't stand up. It's like, well, if they're good, well, who defines it? Right. And, and it's only defined one way. And he will constantly rail against postmodernism, this, you know, moral relativism where it's like, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. But when you appeal to that, what you're appealing to is that objective truth is not real. Objective morality is not real. And it goes back again, another Ravi Zacharias example where he was at some debate and, you know, he used a very extreme example. He's like, if I were to pull a newborn baby onto stage and take a knife and cut its head off, would that be wrong? Mm -hmm. And the guy paused and he said, well, I wouldn't like it, but I couldn't say that it was wrong, <laughs> which is a deeply consistent yes. intellectual position Correct. for a moral relativist, a naturalist, like a biological evolutionist, like a humanist. Of course, if we are just stardust, right, that evolved into fish that, you know, evolved into, you know, chimps that evolved into us, then that's exactly correct. And, you know, the, the crowd, you know, kind of had an audible gas, but it's like, that is the logical intellectual outworking of that worldview. Right. But Ray Comfort does a fantastic job and has done for decades, but he just looks at the Ten Commandments and he's like, are you a liar? Yes. You know, have you ever uh, had sexual thoughts about a woman that wasn't your wife? Yes. Have you ever uh, disrespected your mother or father? Yes. Have you ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit, said GD or used God's name in vain? It's like, well, that's for the Ten Commandments and you check, 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 check. Like, and how are you good enough? Like, what is your standard by which you would be good enough when you got a 60 on the test just with the questions that you were just asked <laughs> right now? And we haven't even covered the other categories. Um, real quick, before we get into church discipline, which is going to be super fun, who's excited about that? I need to talk about that stack of books there at the end. So I'm not always great with the cameras. So if you watch us on YouTube, sometimes I point to the stack of books and there's no stack of books. Like I remember, so a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the world's smallest Bible purse that Caleb has. And then, <laughs> then I ended up realizing we didn't have the video of it. So anybody that wanted to know exactly what that looks like, look at that cute little thing. Isn't it wonderful? But back to that stack of books. We know there are guys out there that want to start their own forging tables. Crossway has been a tremendous partner with us to get us authors on the podcast, but also we told them the same thing. Guys want to start their own forging table, but they don't know what to buy. So we figured out here's a five book forging table starter set for you guys. It includes an ESV men's study Bible new this year. It's fantastic. The book of Romans scripture journal study edition. So it's just like these journals that Winkler and I have in front of us, but they have the study edition notes from the ESV Bible there. 
There's a devotional from Paul David Tripp called New Morning Mercies. There's a book by Douglas O'Donnell that describes the different types of writings in the Bible, and then a great book by Vody Bauckham called Family Shepherds. And so it's a quick and easy three-step process to get that book at a tremendous discount of 50%. Step one, go to crossway.org and create a free Crossway Plus account. It's not like, oh, it's free for three months and then we charge you $15 a month. No, it's just always free. They just need to know how they can get in touch with you. Step two, put all of those books, which are here in the show notes, into your cart. And then the final step is at checkout. Put in this promo code BSSP50 to get 50% off of that stack. That's Bravo Sierra, Sierra Papa 5-0 to get 50% off that stack. Guys, is a tremendous resource. We do not get paid. This is not a paid commercial. We literally just wanted to do this for your edification. So who has not read yet? Okay, we're going to read from the world's smallest mini Bible. Let's hit it. It's going to be Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, now pause, pause. I set you up incorrectly, but we're going to get back to eight to 19 and 20. Okay. But I want to talk about this thing first because people will refer to 19 and 20, but they don't think about it in the context of everything else. So to go back to this context, this is colloquially inside the church called church discipline. Okay. How many churches do you know of that do this? I can't say that ours does. I don't know of one. I don't think yours does. Uh Uh-uh. Have y'all, literally, have y'all ever seen this worked out where someone went to someone in private and addressed something and it didn't work out? And then they took two or three witnesses and it didn't work out. And then they were brought before the congregation and then expelled from the congregation. Nope. I've never seen it. it. It could just be that it's very effective. They never make it to, you know, phase three. (laughs) They never make it to step three. They never make it to the third step of the process or they bow out before then. That's so good, Zach. That's yeah. a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> yeah. It's very diplomatic. Right. Diplomatic, but maybe incorrect. And so that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the problem is you might be right because there's options. It's, it's taken care of at step one or step two. The person that's in the process is like, F you guys, I'm not going through this process. I can think of some examples in our church recently where really? some things changed. Can you describe it in a way that's not going to give it away? Um, no, but we had, <laughs> can some, you pretend? We had some, uh, <laughs> some, some people that are no longer with us. And, Did um, they die or are they yeah. just not at the church anymore? Not at the church anymore. Roger. Okay. But I'm just saying, it seemed to me that there might have been some examples like that, but they were able to work it out before they needed to come before the congregation. That's my main point. I'm sure that's happened. Right. I mean, you would think that, and it would be interesting to know kind of what the stance is of a lot of churches. Yeah. They do that. Well, I mean, I can tell you like in the Catholic church, you know, uh, there is this whole thing of, you know, communion, right? And we're not allowed to take communion. If we have not, if we've missed mass, we have, we can't take communion. Uh, if you, I mean, there's a whole catechism of rules. It's going to sound very familiar. Um, uh, for those of you who have been following along, uh, there's a whole catechism of rules that Catholics have to follow. And if you break those rules, you got to go to confession and you got to confess that sin. If you have not gone to confession and been done your penance, you can't take communion. And to me, the, the parallel here is that, you know, well, are we calling people out? Well, 
the Catholic church is essentially signifying by your inability to take communion that you are not right with God in this very moment. So you don't get to do this. Now, do Catholics really follow that? No, they still go up and take their communion and they just, you know, uh, no, I get to do it anyway because I went through confirmation. But um, again, I, I mean, to your point, Zach, I, I mean, I think it, it probably does happen. It probably is happening more behind closed doors. I imagine that there are pastors who are holding each other accountable uh, and maybe not airing that publicly. Um, but to your point, I think maybe it just never gets that far. This is probably not exactly the same thing. And I hesitate to bring this up for a lot of reasons, but, um, Matt Chandler's example <coughs> recently where I think he was sort of, there were some public things that were said a brief period and then he came back. It was probably the closest example I could think of. I don't think that's well, well who's, who's the pastor that you said went up in Stephen Furtick's church and Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Let it on fire. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically for Horrible those that, that kind of missed the thread on this. So Matt Chandler came up and there was apparently an altercation in the lobby at the village church down in the Dallas area where a woman came up and was like hooting and hollering. Now, apparently like in Matt Chandler's face, apparently now this woman knew a gal that Matt Chandler had been DMing with. Okay. And so automatically when you hear about any prominent man DMing with some random woman, you think sexual explicit affair, that type of thing. Yeah. Matt Chandler gets before the church and with the support of the elder board said these texts were not sexual or inappropriate in nature. And when they were describing the situation, Matt Chandler refused to use the word sin to describe what was going on in these messages back and forth. He called it unhealth. He's like, it, it, the situation revealed some unhealth in me that I need to work with. The elder board has suggested that I take, um, take some time away from the pulpit to get healing and get blah, 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 and all this. But no one ever used the word sin. And as I'm racking my brain, it's like, well, he wasn't making physical threats against this woman. He wasn't making sexual advances towards this woman. Was he just sending her memes that were off color? Were they political memers sending, sending these things back and forth? No part of the story made sense whatsoever. It still doesn't make sense. But the elders came out and said, hey, the best thing to do here is just to give him some time away. And then he was brought back to the pulpit with much fanfare. And then he's just kind of continued trucking along from there. No part of that made sense. And the sense that I get, and I can't say why I have this opinion, but it is a well-formed opinion, I'll say it that way, is that the staff in and around Matt Chandler make some very piss poor decisions. And this is one of the one of the highest ones of that order. Because if there's no there there, yeah, then just move on. Yeah. Right? right? Like, but if there is a there there, don't call it unhealth, <laughs> call it sin, call it what it is. Yeah. Like maybe he can be, you know, restored back to his position or maybe he can't be, but no part of that mm. made sense in terms of the narrative that they were espousing for the public. Because again, if, if there was sin here, if there was some sort of inappropriateness, but then also I've gone through crisis PR training before, which is only admit to what the public already knows. And then if more information comes out, give an additional apology. You don't get extra bonus points for admitting to stuff that no one knew about. And so I'm like, are they following that tactic? Because if they are, yeah, they're just going to say, hey, no one else is going to find out this particular detail. So we just won't talk about it. They also made it a point, if I remember correctly, to say both other spouses were like, they in knew the, in the know. On yeah, they knew that. that they were messaging back and forth. It's so it's like, weird. so it's like in your and biggest imagination, 
Yeah. Right. In your biggest imagination, what were they doing that would cause your pastor to not be able to preach from the pulpit for four months? Right. <clears throat> I didn't realize it was that long. Yeah, it was like three or four months. It was a very extended absence. And it's just like, okay, if both spouses are involved, like if, if all that's on the up and up, like, and it's not sexual, then what is it? Were they gambling? Were they sports yeah. betting? Like what, what exactly <laughs> can, were they doing? Well, I mean, can you, can you imagine a scenario as a husband? Can you imagine a scenario where your wife would be DMing or texting another man individually who is not like a blood relative of hers, uh, like where they would have like a constant stream of communication. Can you imagine a scenario where that would be possible with your spouse? It would be a very rare case, but if I knew about it, it would have Mm -hmm. to be like, Oh, this is some sort of business connection for her. They just happen to be communicating via the Instagram app as opposed to the SMS app on their phone. Like, yeah, I don't know. I just have this whole thing of like, I mean, and maybe it's my own hang up, but I'm just, you know, I can't imagine a scenario like beyond like, okay, I have a business partner and, and, you know, I have employees who work for me and, but all of those messages are completely 100% business related. Like there would be nothing where they would go, well, you need to go up and apologize or reveal some unhealth here. It's like, no, this is all literally just business talk. Right. I look at it more like, well, maybe it hadn't risen to this scenario yet, but you are playing with fire in that moment. If you have decided to have some sort of personal connection through a direct message chain, I think you're playing with fire. I think that it probably does reveal something that you, that, that is within you a desire that's there. There's a temptation that's there that probably does need to be rooted out. I mean, it's that whole idea of like, you know, are you, is, it's not enough to not sin. It's also the, it's the, you know, if your eyes are causing you to sin, right. We just, we just went through it. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I just can't imagine a scenario where I would have, if it was not a hundred percent business and there would be zero question marks. Right. I don't think well, that there would be any question marks. And, there. Again, and again, to put a, put a bow on the, the Matt Chandler thing is if there was no there there, then your elder board decided to make this an international incident because every single Christian publication on the planet yeah. had to talk about this and had a headline about it. Right. As opposed to if just some ratchet woman comes running through the lobby and starts making a ruckus, there's maybe a few hundred people that knew that that happened right. and the story disappears in a weekend. And so it's like, but here we are over a year later still talking about it. So it's just weird. But let's go back to verse 19 and 20 because this you know goes right into the context of what we were just talking about with the, with the church discipline. Right. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven or where two or three have gathered together in my name. I am there in their midst. So this is describing Jesus's omnipresence, but the context is his presence will be with them in a disciplined situation. So I've heard people use verse 20 for where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. And they're talking about having coffee with their buddies right? Mm-hmm. Or with the girlfriends, right? So they're drinking their pumpkin spice lattes and there's three of them at a table. It's like, oh, Jesus is here with us. It's like, that's not the context of this verse. The context is really, I mean, step two of, of discipline. Like if, if they refuse, take others along with you, uh, you know, so that you have the evidence of two or three witnesses, which goes back to Deuteronomy 19. And so I think that that's important here with that. Uh, y'all have anything else on this before we move to the parable of the unforgiving servant? Okay. The boldest among you, you're going to read this large chunk but I'm going to keep interrupting you. So who is okay with being interrupted a lot? Caleb, you seem to have the most positive and and happy countenance. So let's start with verse 21 and we'll go from there. 
Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? <coughs> up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do, not say up, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Pause. So some versions say 77 times. Some say 70 times seven. Now, the interesting context here for those numbers is the rabbis taught that you should give, forgive people three times. So Peter is thinking he's being especially generous by saying seven. So it's double plus one, as our pastor described it this morning, double plus one. And Jesus is like, no, nah, man, 70 times seven or 77 times. Again, I ask, literalists, do you take this part literally? Do you, do you have a check sheet inside uh, your office that says, I've forgiven this clown 74 times, three more to go, like that type of thing. So obviously the point that he's making is that you should for continue to forgive people. Forgiveness doesn't erase consequences or immediately reconcile relationships. You know, you still need repentance and, and the rebuilding of trust and all that. But just wanted to make that point there. Anything else on that before Caleb gets back going? All right, back into the verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven <coughs> may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Pause. So 10,000 talents on this. We need to talk about this. That'll probably be the last pause, and I'll let you kind of get through it. But this kind of shades the entire story. So if you don't understand what he means, he's given us a parable of 10,000 talents. It's almost impossible to calculate that. Some people have tried to do the math on it, but it's an impossible amount to pay back. For some context, again, our pastor, Mark Hitchcock of Faith Bible, talked about this this morning, so I'm getting this information from him. That 10,000 talents was more than 10x the entire tax revenue of Israel on an annual basis. So that's the amount of debt being wow. described here. 10 times, right? 10 times the amount of tax revenue for all of Israel for an entire year. Also, um, there are, well, there's different things to describe later, but the, the point is not 10,000 talents. The point is, that'd be like someone saying, you owe me 11 bajillion dollars. Like that's a, a, a basically what, it's, it's a number that doesn't even make sense in an ancient context, much less a modern one with, you know, new exchange rates or whatever. So let's pick it back up in verse 25 and go ahead and read through the end. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and, and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So there's a lot of lessons here in this parable. One of the big lessons is this is essentially about Christians that judge other Christians and withhold forgiveness from them. Because when you're called a wicked slave, according to the NASB, or a wicked servant, according to the ESV, it, it's saying that it is categorically wicked to not forgive people. Yeah. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean, again, this doesn't mean that the relationship is reconciled immediately. 
That doesn't mean there are consequences. I use this extreme example a lot, but Dylan Roof, he went into a black church. He's a white supremacist that specifically went to a black church to kill black people. He did so, killed a lot of people. And within like a day or two, one by one, the congregants of that church, the family members of those that had been slain, one by one went up to Dylan Roof, you know, through the, the glass at the, the, you know, courthouse or whatever, forgiving him and begging him to turn to Christ, to repent and turn to Christ. None of them, though, advocated that Dylan Roof should not be punished for his actions. So he was forgiven, but, but not like without consequences, right. right? So that's something that's very important. One other thing about this, you know, 10,000 talents thing is in verse 26, you see the person here saying, I will pay everything. Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. In order to do that, and you take the average worker's salary at that time period in history, that person would have to work for roughly 200,000 years to come up with 10,000 talents worth of money. So no, there was no amount of patience that the master could have given this slave or the servant to be able to pay off this debt. So again, the point is that it's this innumerable debt. But then you have a debt that is easy to think of, 100 denarii. That's about three months wages. So everybody in the context uh, at this time period would have known what they were talking about. But the whole point is, is that there are people here that, that love to be aggrieved. There are people that love to be angry, people that love to be a victim. but when you withhold forgiveness from your brothers, it's not just affecting them, it's deeply affecting you. And we see that as evidence in verse 34, whenever he gives them over to the jailers, according to the ESV, but in, you know, in the NASB, it's he gives them over to the torturers. This is an allusion to the eternal punishment of hell. And so there, there's a lot here, guys. I know I just kind of gave a basic overview of a couple of the high points, but hop in wherever you want to on the parable of the unforgiving servant. I think one of the first things that comes to mind here is, you know, uh, mercy truly experienced will produce mercy demonstrated. Uh, if you have truly experienced the forgiveness for your own sin and the forgiveness that comes with the salvation from Jesus, the, then forgiving others would not be something that, I mean, it should not be a hindrance. Like you've been given a great mercy and when people do things that you feel uh, are an injustice towards you or whatever, I mean, you are called upon to forgive them again to Kyle's point. I mean, it's not like, you know, yeah, you're forgiven. Come on back in, you know, yeah, I, I loaned you $10,000. You didn't pay it back. Come on back in. I forgive you for not paying me back. Do you need any more money? Like, not talking about doing something like that, it, it, but I do think it's like, no, I forgive you. Like, you know, we can still be, you know, you can be welcomed back in to the kingdom. And I think that's the other thing. I mean, it's the idea of if you really have changed. You don't get to sit in this seat anymore of like, I have to be on top of things. Like I, I mean, it's, I have like, I need to be satisfied that justice has been done. We don't get to sit in that seat. Not if you've, not if you've been given that mercy. One thing that Pastor uh, Mark Hitchcock said today, he gave a definition of forgiveness that I hadn't considered. So I thought I'd look it up here. The, the definition that this actually says here is stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake, which is different from what he said. Essentially, what he said was, you are absolving yourself of the requirement to pay them back. Something along those lines. So to your point, I mean, they, they didn't say, well, he doesn't need to go to prison or be punished or whatever, but they're saying, I'm absolving myself of 
the need to have payback. But there's still going to be consequences. I'm still I'm still going to potentially have issue with you, et cetera, but I'm not going to come after you. That's different from what this definition says. This is the one that I've always read it as, and that's very difficult to process sometimes, you know, because that's almost something that I don't know if I have the ability emotionally. I could I could think about circumstances where I could not emotionally actually forgive somebody if they had committed something. I could see where that would be difficult. Examples like Joby Martin's, you know, one about the guy whose son was killed and then he eventually adopts him. He lives in print. Like, unbelievable, right? Mm-hmm. It'd be very difficult for me to come to peace with that without a whole lot of grace, right? But I could absolutely say, I'm not going to come after you for something. But you're going to suffer the consequences of what you've, you know, put yourself in. So I don't know. One, what I feel like, so the, the thing you're describing was there was a guy whose son was shot and killed. The guy that shot and killed his son went to prison. And the first time that father saw the, the murderer of his child brought into the courtroom, he said he was overwhelmed with love mm. for that boy. Yeah. And man, you get choked up even thinking about that. It's like love? Yeah. Of all the words, love? And he couldn't shake it. And to make a long story short, he ends up writing the kid and basically saying, hey, you know, I don't have a son anymore, but I, I would like for you to be my son if you'll have me. And the kid writes him back from prison and like, yes, like this is a kid without a dad that shot a kid that had a dad and that dad ends up adopting him as mm. his son, right? Wow. Tell me that's not the gospel though. And so this is what I think, Zach. So this just came to me as you were describing this. We talked off here about Monty Williams, uh, yeah, the coach yeah. for the Detroit Pistons right now. Mm-hmm. When he was an assistant coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder, his wife was in a car accident where she was hit by someone who was like high on meth or, or alcohol or something like that and killed his wife. And he goes to the funeral and look this up on YouTube, guys. Just type in Monty Williams funeral right into YouTube or whatever. And he delivers a, a eulogy for his wife that I can't listen to without crying. And he doesn't even crack. His voice doesn't crack at all. And he implores the congregation to pray for the family of that woman who also died in the crash, the woman that killed his wife. And say, well, I, I, she, maybe she didn't die, but she got really injured or something. But she's like, hey, there are more people suffering here than just my family. We need to be praying for them too. And it was like a supernatural amount of strength and poise. I've talked about my cousin Jennifer when her husband, you know, CJ, my cousin, uh, Edmund Police Department officer that was killed in the line of duty last year, she delivered the eulogy. I didn't know she was going to deliver the eulogy. I'm in pieces at the fact that she's even walking on stage and she calmly and with a tremendous amount of grace and courage delivers the eulogy for her husband. Doesn't crack, doesn't waver, shows tremendous strength for her two young children, gets off the stage very subtly, walks, And just runs her hand along the casket, the flag draped casket, and sits back down. And I'm sitting there like, how? How can you do that? And it's like, I don't think I can understand because I haven't been given the understanding. You know why? Because my wife's alive. My kids are here. But what would happen if, you know, Kelsey or James or Eli were taken? what would happen to me? And I would like to think that there would be some sort of eternal, otherworldly, ethereal level of strength and courage that would be delivered to me so that I could stand up there like that rock that Jordan Peterson talks about to be the guy at your father's funeral that everybody can attach themselves to. And it's just like, so that's what I think about that, Zach, is I hope 
that in that type of scenario that 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 it's given to you to where after the fact no one can say oh that was just kyle being tough they're like kyle got that from somewhere where did kyle get that from in that moment i i'm my father passed away in march and i gave his eulogy at his funeral um and you know i had i would i there's a whole long story about it and 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 it, I'd, I'd love to share it sometime, but you know, I read that thing. I don't know how many times, um, practiced it cause I was, I wanted to be strong. I didn't want to break down, but I read it over and over again and I couldn't get through it. Um, asked some of the guys that I was close to at my Sunday school and do Bible study with, if, uh, they could just pray for me, uh, that I could get through it. And six of them showed up at the funeral. Didn't know my dad from Adam. Uh, they showed up at the funeral. And when I went up on stage, they prayed for me. They were in the audience and they were praying for me. And I got through it. Um, cracked one time. Um, but I did get through it. And I got off the stage and I fell to pieces. Um, but for the moment that I wanted to honor my father, um, it was the only thing that was holding me up was the Holy spirit. And that's the only thing I, it's like I had six people that were praying for me and the Holy spirit just kind of basically, it's like, you're going to get through this. And I did. And, um, probably, um, in terms of just spiritual, uh, things that I kind of point to as landmark events in my life, it's a big one because you just, you know, I, there's no way I, I, I tried over and over again to get through this and I could not get through it without breaking down. And finally, you know, the moment whenever I probably would have been more vulnerable than ever, I was able to get through it. And I truly believe it's because there were six guys sitting in a crowd who were praying for me just so I could get through it. And guys, there's your commercial for a foxhole. So a lot of guys that are listening to this right now, you're you're up against it in your life and there's no one that can shoulder any of your burden. You got a bunch of weight on your back and no one else to take it off of you. And so if you have a foxhole of guys that you can rely on, not 6 PM friends, but 3 AM friends, mm -hmm. right? And for any of you guys in the audience that are new, cause I know we get new people every week. A 6 PM friend is that guy that you can call right up until about 6 PM. And then he's just not really available. Oh, you know, we got soccer practice. Or, oh, you know, we got this. And oh, you know, the old battle actually wants me to fix the whatever hole in the wall. <laughs> so there's those guys. And then there's your 3 a.m. friends. Those are the dudes where you call them at 3 a.m. Not only do they answer, but you can hear them putting on their jeans. They're pulling out their pistol. They're grabbing a shovel because they assume you're not calling at 3 o'clock in the morning to ask for, you know, tax advice. But we're probably burying a body, <laughs> right? <clears throat> But also that's, you know, the extreme funny example, but it's also those guys that will show up at your father's funeral Yeah, amen. because we've done that. We, we know a guy who will remain nameless, but you know, his father died and you and I were there and a bunch of other, this guy's foxhole guys were there. None of us that have ever met his dad, but we were there for him and we were there for his mother, the, the deceased widow for his sister, for the rest of the family, right? And you got to have people like that in your life because at some point, dudes, things are going to fall apart for you. 
It's just coming for you. Even if you've got a lot of money in the bank and a lot of good circumstances heading in your direction, most of us are one visit from the highway patrolman or one phone call away from absolutely crushing ourselves into the ground. And we all immediately thought of that one or two examples that would put us to that point. And if you don't have a band of brothers, a foxhole, or whatever the hell you want to call it, a tribe of dudes around you that are going to be able to come by and help you pick up the pieces, then you're going to be SOL when the time comes. So there's a lot more that could be said about Matthew 18, but guys, I think that's probably a good time to put a bow on it. But come back here next week where we are going to talk about Matthew 19. So be prepared to talk about that. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So remember, the forging table starter set by Crossway. All the stuff in the show notes for how to do that is right here in the show notes. And also, we've got the links to our donation page. Guys, the only way we can equip men to push back darkness around the globe is because we have donors like you that are dedicated to what we do and how we do it. And we need more people just like you to help us out. So hop on board. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>